0: everyone awake? (laughs) If you have your apps or your Bibles, uh, why don't you open to Psalm 90? We're going to start by reading through that. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's the Amen corner back there. Yeah. Uh, this is one of my favorite psalms, uh, year in and year out. Psalm 90 is just one of my favorites. It's, uh, it's majestic, I think, uniquely, especially the opening of that. Psalm 90 is the only song in the book of Psalms that's attributed to Moses. And if you think of this, this is probably written right at the end of his life. So uh, consider sort of the time and the place from which this was likely written. Uh, Moses is is old and he's getting ready to die. He will die soon. And also, remember that he had left Egypt with a couple million people in all likelihood 40 years prior. And what happened to all the people of that group that were 20 years old and older in that 40-year period? They had all died. And he's getting ready to face death as well. And so you've got this song that is sort of framed in a couple different ways. It's a lament on one one hand. So he's going to tell us, he's going to look back over those 40 years, and he's going to talk about suffering and death and God's anger for sin. But then he's going to wind down with this prayer, reflecting on what had come before. His prayer is going to be for God to intervene in their lives in a way not only to restore joy, but to give them wisdom that's adequate to live life well. That's the same thing we need. Guys, it doesn't matter how long you live. Uh, life on this earth is short. Uh, in another career, I used to inspect homes, and I've told the story before, but it bears repeating. So I go into a home. It's on South Burlingame Road. It used to stick out because it was pink. It was the pink house on the corner. And as I'm walking into the front of the house... There's an old man. He's bent over. He's got a cane. He can barely walk. He's coming out of the house. He's the owner. He built that house, they've told me, as I'm coming along. And so I'm doing my inspection, and I get to the basement. And this will date you if you know what I'm talking about. He had a tiki bar in the basement. That was probably the thing in the 40s or 50s when that house was built. And behind the bar, there was a picture... Of a strapping, blonde-headed man carrying a woman on his shoulders, skiing behind a boat. The guy that I saw walk out was the guy in the picture. And it was just a vivid illustration to Mike, I'll never forget it, that his life, his adult life, had pretty well been lived from the time I saw him walk out that house. That's what he was, and I'm sure in his mind, it had just happened days before. Life is short. And so Moses is writing a song that takes into account life is short. And by the way, there's this element to it that's futility. You know, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this element of vanity. Life, it doesn't turn out the way we think it should. Well, he's he's talking about that as well as their experience having come through the Exodus. So there's lament on one hand, there's prayer for wisdom on the other. Alan Ross summarizes the song this way, Contrasting God's eternity with mankind's transitoriness, the brevity of our life, and acknowledging that man's days quickly pass away in God's wrath, Moses prays for God's compassion to instruct them in how to use their time wisely and thereby establish the work of their hands and replace their sorrows with joy. So as we normally do, we'll work through this in uh, different verses, the themes. We'll try and pick these up as we go verses by verses. So starting with verses 1 and 2, uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, the Hebrew for that just means it's, you've been our house, you've been the place we live. So that word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for God, for animals, for people. And sometimes it's used to describe a place that's safe. So some translations will say, God, You have been our refuge. So it's the place I live, or probably more particularly, it's the place in which I find safety. God is the ultimate refuge, the safe place, we can say, the hiding place as well. And Moses and Israel knew this personally by the ways God delivered them from Egypt and then protected and provided for them through their 40 years in the wilderness. Remember that Israel let's just say a couple million people, they're slaves, they're impotent, they live in the strongest nation empire on the earth in that day with the best military of their day, and God by miraculous signs and wonders and powers delivers them out of there, and then for 40 years, think of manna, think of water, I think it's Deuteronomy, the end says your sandals didn't wear out. So he's reminding them that this was their experience with God. God is the one that not only was their dwelling place, but had protected them and provided for them in their desert wanderings. Deuteronomy 33, also written about the same time as this song, says the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. God is the one within which you live. He is the one holding you up and sustaining you. Psalm 71.3 uses the same word. It's a prayer. Be to me a rock of refuge. Be that place in which I can hide which you protect me. Psalm 91.9 uses the same word. You have made the Lord, Yahweh, your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. You've made your God. You've made the one I know as my refuge. That's the one you're now claiming as your refuge and your God. Moses says that all the hazards and challenges, the failures and the triumphs, he and Israel had seen occurred within the presence and protection of God. And a little bit of what that looked like for him. He's the God of miracles and deliverance in the Exodus. He's the God of Mount Sinai. So that would be God of fire and thunder and earthquake and trumpet blast. That was Moses' and Israel's refuge. Refuge. Now, let me qualify this too. You know, when we go through the Old Testament text, we always say, so we want to look at it in context, and then we need to bring a New Testament lens to talk about that as well. God let Israel experience some of the fruits of their sin, but He was constantly protecting and providing for them at the same time. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the same thing happens to you and I. We say, Christ is my refuge. It doesn't mean that God saves me from all the effects of the choices I make but even there where there are where I make lousy decisions and I get the fruit god still says he's using even those things those lousy decisions sinful things I've done he still somehow turns those around for my best thinking of romans 8 there today we have an even better refuge in that our refuge is now in christ so remember god for israel is the god of sinai he's scary he, he, it's thunder. It's like you remember he he intentionally terrifies them at Sinai, because he says he wants to engender fear for him so that they won't sin. And of course, this psalm winds down saying, "Guess what? Nobody can bring to God the kind of reverence and fear He deserves, and that's why this closes on a prayer." But so now, if you think of us, God isn't God of fire and thunder today, is He? Because in Christ now, God of fire and thunder is now our Father. And we brought near in Christ. And Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. And the Father loves us, and the Spirit indwells us. You know, it's a different world for us. So God was still their refuge and their protection, but we have that in spades. And especially this, we we tend to lose sight of this. God's most interested, the treasure that you have, and I have, The thing that God says He will always preserve for us is our faith and our spiritual life. It's not our homes. It's not our health. It's not our money. It's not good times. That's that's not a promise in the New Testament. But what God does say is our faith is valuable. And He grants faith as a gift and He protects faith. He gives us eternal life. He protects our life. So Christians, as you know, and other texts we've looked at, we can suffer all kinds in fact, more than those in the world, Christians are promised persecution. That you don't just get the normal difficulties in life that everybody else gets. You're Christ and you live in the world that rejected Christ, so the world's going to reject you as well, said Jesus. So, but we have a better refuge in Christ. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Jesus said this in John 17. Remember, this is the night, so this is His last night on earth. He's going to suffer the next day. And as He prays in John 17, He says this, praying to the Father, speaking of His disciples, He says, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, Judas. Judas was never one of Christ. He was brought along. He had a role to play, but he was never one So Jesus says, Father, those ones you gave me, those disciples here in this room with me tonight, I haven't lost any one of them. I've guarded them. And that's what he does for us today. So we have a refuge that's better than what Israel had and that Moses is referencing in Psalm 90. Christ is our good shepherd. He's keeping us. He's calling us by name. He's getting us safely all the way home. Really, the only question for us is, is Christ my shepherd? Is Christ my refuge? Is Christ my dwelling place? Do I know that? If I died today, do I know with no doubts I'm going to heaven because of Christ? Not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of Christ. We have a better refuge than the Jews did, than Moses did. Look at verse 2 also. The one Moses calls Israel's dwelling place is the eternal God. And he frames this sort of through creation. So before so (laughs) you guys, you know, if you're in the States, if you see a house that's 100 or 200 years old, you say, wow, that's old. And if you go to Europe and you see a castle that's a thousand years old, you say, man, that's old. Or, you know, if you go to the hills and you look at the rocks, you're like, they're really old. So Moses says before the mountains were born, before the earth exists, before you created the earth or the world, So before there's any matter, there's no cosmos. He says, from everlasting to everlasting. From eternity past to eternity future, you're God. And so this means as creator, before God creates, God is all that is. Anything that has existence has existence by God's hand. So Moses is saying, Lord, the the one that brought everything into existence that has existence... That's the one that's guarding and protecting us. That's our refuge, the creator of all things. Paul was talking to the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17, and he said this, In Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and we move and we have our being. As Paul states it, it is within the omnipresent God Himself That we exist. So God's not only the creator of all things, but guys, God is all places at all times. We say omnipresent. There isn't space that God doesn't occupy. You can't go to a place. This is one of the themes in Psalm 139. You can't find a place where God isn't. In all places, God is. Think of this for just a second. So in Him... We not only have our existence, but in him we live and move and have being. So if I'm a professing atheist, I'm a little bit like a fish swimming in the ocean, denying that water exists. Or if I'm an agnostic and a fish in the ocean and my gills are moving and the water's going over and I'm breathing, I'm denying at the same time that such a thing as oxygen is around or maybe I'm not sure. But all of us exist within God, and we have existence by God. That's Moses' point. God is the ultimate reality. There's nothing else and no one else unless God gives them existence. Moses says God is, and He's always been. He's the ultimate reality, and that eternal God is our refuge. And here's the thing at the end of the day. Any hope. So Moses closes with a prayer. So if you say a prayer, any hope, any wish I have for the future, any hope not ultimately rooted in the eternal reality is God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is a fool's hope. Any hope for the future, especially for for whatever our concept of immortality or, or eternity is, any hope not born, not sustained, not set on God himself is a fool's hope. We're just the latest generation to come along. God is from everlasting to everlasting. Look at verses 3 through 10, and I'll actually break this down a couple ways. Verses 3 through 6 to start. Moses turns from God's eternal nature and reality to this very, very brief nature of our existence on the earth. And then the reality of sin and death that that brings up. So look at those verses. Uh, You return man to dust. And Remember, Moses is writing about his experience. This is what he has seen. You return man to dust a thousand years in your sight. That's like yesterday. It's like a watch in the night. That'd be about four hours long. A lifetime is just like a little brief period in the night. You sweep them away. They're like a dream. This is is mortal man's existence. Like grass that's renewed in the morning it flourishes, it renews, and it fades and withers by evening. The thought of the brevity of life comes up in a couple of key images throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, but grass is one of them. And not quite grass the way we typically think of. Our lives are so short, especially in comparison to God, that He says we're like grass that springs up in a day. Excuse me. If you think of the Midwest, uh, your lawn, if you don't water it, it won't be a day, but weeks, it'll brown out, won't it? It'll go dormant because there's just not enough water. But if you go to the Southwest United States or the Middle East where Moses was hanging out, it's desert, but there's all these seeds in the desert ground. And so what happens if a desert shower pops up in the morning? Guys, all this stuff, it sprouts almost to me. It's almost miraculous. You'll see green grass and flowers sprout up because a little bit of water hit it. But if that dry desert wind comes up in the afternoon, the green grass that started in the morning, it will wither and die by the evening. It's that fast. And that's what Moses is saying about the brevity of our life. It's like a, a blade of grass that would spring up and before the day ends, it's dead. It's very brief. Super, super short. Listen to this from Isaiah 40. Also a very well-known passage in Scripture, that chapter in Isaiah. But Isaiah there says, All flesh, so all humanity, all people, wherever you call home, whenever you've lived, all flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Think of a desert wind. And the conclusion is, surely the people are grass. Our time here is so short, it's like that grass. It sprang up and before the day was over, it was gone. There are five times in Scripture, I don't think these are on your study sheet, that in the uh, James, I think is in the New Testament, the others are all Old Testament, in which it says, life is a vapor, life is a smoke, uh, and life is a breath. So if you think of this... um, if it's cold and you breathe out and you see your breath in the air, what happens to it as soon as you turn around? It's gone. Or a vapor, if you see steam come off your kettle in the morning, it goes up, you see it in a moment, but it's so transient and it disappears into the rest of the air. Same with smoke. If you see a fire, you'll see the smoke, but get a little distance, it dissipates and it's gone. That's the other comparison. Life here is so short that it's like these very transitory... Short-lived experiences you and I see every day. Moses did too. If you live to a 100 or a 1,000 or 10,000 years, compared to eternity, it is nothing. It's a blink. Any limited lifetime, think of eternity, any amount of life short of eternity is a blink. It's short. Very short indeed. God turns man back into dust, the dust he was made of. You remember in Genesis 2 in the creation account, God... The, the pinnacle of creation is Adam and then out of Adam, Eve, and Adam is formed by the dust of the earth. And do you remember in Genesis 3, when God comes and Adam and Eve have sinned and they've fallen, God tells him, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. That's futility. There was no futility before the fall. So Adam and Eve, they could work, they could labor, the ground would respond to them, everything would be efficient and easy in that sense. But he says, you'll you'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard work for you now where it wouldn't have been before. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, because, buddy, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Adam, I formed you out of the ground. I told you if you did this thing, you'd die. You've died spiritually. You're going to die physically, and your body is going to return elementally, if we can say it that way, right into the very compounds from which you were originally taken. And I want to say this too, just another sort of parenthesis in Psalm 90. When we talk about this, as Christians, you've got to bring the New Testament lens in. So this is more than an Old Testament song. You've got to bring a New Testament understanding in. Um, I stood in front of the mirror one day and saw my face. And I was reminded that I looked a bit like my dad. You laugh. So did I, sort of. But here was the thing. I knew that I not only looked a bit like my dad, but I acted a bit like my dad. And my dad was a, a fine fellow in many ways, but he was a very quirky guy also. And so he was the butt of many of the family's jokes. And so as I'm looking at my dad's image, a verse from 1 Corinthians 15 struck me. And I think that was just divinely the Holy Spirit speaking to me because I was sort of lamenting, you know, thinking of my dad's negatives and seeing those negatives in my life, I was sort of thinking, oh no, I'm like my dad. But listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15. As was the man of dust. Who's the man of dust? That's Adam. That's your father. That's the father you and I all come from. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. What does that mean? It means if Adam's the only father, if you've been born once, Adam died and returned to dust. You're going to die and your end is dust. But he continues. And as is the man of heaven, the man who who didn't start as dust of the earth, the man who came from heaven, Jesus, so are those who are of heaven. So when we've been born again through faith in Jesus, we have this new beginning and Adam on the earth isn't our only father. We've had a second birth. Jesus, the man from heaven, is our new point of origin, our new birth, our new father. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we do look at yourself, look at your parents, wherever you came from, we do. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is as certainly as you can't help resembling your parents, your forebears. It's a given because they're your origin. If you've trusted Christ, if he's now your savior and your refuge, you will be just like him. You bear his image now spiritually, but you'll bear his glory and his image eternally in the future. So even though, you know, they're talking about, OK, you've got this short life and you go back to the dust. The dust is not our hope. Heaven and glory forever in Christ's presence is our hope because we've we've been born again from the man from heaven. So. Why is it? Why is life so short? Verses 7 through 10. So here's the thing. The older you get, usually, the readier you are to die. (laughs) There's a reason for that. Okay, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Look at what uh, Moses attributes the brevity of life to. He says, we are brought to an end by God's anger, by your wrath. You have set our sins, our iniquities before you, even our secret sins, God, you've brought it out into the light of day and you're angry. You have wrath over our sins. All our days pass away under your wrath. So Moses and Israel and all humanity suffer futility and death because God is angry over sin. God is has wrath, this intense hatred for sin. Why is life short? Why is life filled with futility? Because sin and death, its fruit, are opposed to God. God has a holy hatred for anything opposed to His own nature and His own character. Listen to this from Proverbs 8. If you read the book of Proverbs, you know that for nine chapters, chapters 1 through 9, the Father is just really... He's selling His Son on the value of gaining biblical wisdom. That life's hard, but if you know where God fits into this puzzle, and if you commit yourself to God and God's ways, you'll gain wisdom that will allow you to live life well or successfully. But listen, this is wisdom speaking. Wisdom speaking. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Now we know in this same passage... Wisdom says, I'm at the corner of every street and I'm yelling out to everybody that'll listen. Come, come to my house. I've got wisdom. You'll be blessed. So wisdom isn't hard to find here, okay? Wisdom is shouting at men to come, come and get life. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Now, if you talk to your friends or neighbors and you say, do you love death? No one's going to say yes. But guys, you know what? We live in a culture and a time and a place that is a death-loving culture. This culture celebrates death all over. Reject God, reject the knowledge of God, reject Christ, reject the gospel, reject faith, reject who God's made me, I'm male or female, kill babies and call it good, I celebrate because I have the legal right to kill children in the womb. This is a death-dealing, death-loving culture. God hates death. God hates sin. Sin brings death. God's angry over sin. I think it's Psalm 711. Every day. God never is happy with sin. Ever. It always produces death. It's always opposed to God. To reject the God of life is to embrace death. Can't be any other way. We rightly say on one hand that God is love. That's 1 John 4.8. God is love. But God is not merely or only love. God is always fully and perfectly all that He is and nothing that He isn't. So He's always just, He's always righteous, He's always loved, but He's not one more than the other at any time, in any place. He's always fully all that He is simultaneously. Part of God's nature is to hate anything and everything opposed to His own perfections and standards. Friends, God cannot not hate sin. God cannot not punish sin. The only question for us regarding punishment, God's anger over sin, God's wrath over sin, is whether or not we've sheltered in Christ. God never stops being angry with sin. He he never fails to have wrath for sin. The only question is, who is the object receiving God's anger and wrath for my sin or for your sin? You know, Jesus has taken the anger and wrath of God. He was cursed for us on the tree so that we could gain the righteousness of God in Christ. So it's God doesn't change. He feels the same way about sin today that He did yesterday and before. The only question is, who or what absorbs the anger and wrath of God for your sin and mine? Is it Christ or will it be me? That's the only question. Uh, Moses too may be thinking... You remember, if you read the Exodus account, you've got guys like Dathan and Abiram who rose up and they rebelled against Moses. And Moses says, I'm not your problem. I'm just a guy. God is the one calling the shots here. And you remember, God brings about the death of them and their families. Moses saw all these people judged by God in the wilderness because they rejected God, because they rose up in rebellion. He's seen all of that. He didn't live to see the secret sins, but when you follow, The journey into the land of promise in Joshua 7, this great example of Achan. Achan was a guy from the tribe of Judah and they took Jericho, you know, famously the story of the taking, the walls fall in, they take Jericho and God had said, you may take nothing out of the city. The city is is devoted to destruction. You get nothing, but Achan stole some clothing, some silver and some gold and he hid it. And what happened? His sin was brought out in the full light of day. And he and his family perished. So it doesn't matter if it's a sin that's out there and everybody knows it, or if it's a secret sin, sin always brings death. God always hates it. That's what Moses has seen. Our lives are short because of sin. Look at verse 9. Our lives end like a sigh. They end like a sigh. Uh, The Welsh poet Dylan Thomas uh, wrote famously... Regarding his own father's death, and and listen to what uh, listen to what he says. This is just part of it. It's a short. Uh, this is probably his, one of his best-known poems. Thinking of his dad's fading and dying, he says, "Do not go gentle into that good night, death. Old age should burn; it should be like this bonfire. It should burn and rave at the close of day." rage rage against the dying of the light dad don't go easy don't don't lie down and just take it but rage facing your own death now have you guys seen anybody die guys most of them don't rage i you know i had another former career i was a firefighter i've prayed over people as i know their spirit is leaving their body right now they're dying right in front of me lord are they yours where are they going Most people don't rage. So if you watch someone die of natural causes also, this is generally, this is not always, but this is generally what it's like. Their their strength diminishes slowly. You know, and they go from more activity to less activity and then they end up in a bed. And then their consciousness ebbs away slowly. You know, they can talk today and they talk a little bit less and their memory fades a little bit. You know, and that diminishes. And when that's gone towards the end, their pulse slows down and their breathing slows down. And the pause between pulse and breath slows down. I sat with my father while he was dying. And the pause gets so long, you keep wondering if there's going to be another one or not. And then the final the final moment is to expire. It's a sigh. It's a breath out. And another breath doesn't take its place. And that's how they die. And that's exactly what Moses says here. He says like at the end, our strength is gone. And what's our exit like? We've got so little strength left in these physical dusty bodies. It's just the last breath is, ah, and that's it. That's the way most of us go. Yeah, most of us don't depart in death raving, but whimpering. We simply wear out. Verse 10, life has been reduced. Think of the ages listed before Genesis 6. You know you got Methuselah and ones like him in the the 900s they live into the 900s and afterwards he says 70 years or maybe 80. You know what the average age is today in the US with all our medical stuff and and pharmaceuticals and you name it I think it's still for both men and women it's under 80. Still under 80. It's just a little I think it's 76 and maybe 78 for women. So so he says your life is characterized it's short and it's futile friends that's your life (laughs) there it is it's short (laughs) and it's filled with this sense of futility because it's life on a sin cursed earth how long would you like to live now with that how long would you like to live (laughs) my brother up here who's older than me (laughs) is not asking for a lot more years how long would you like to live and what will that life be like? Now, guys, I've been supremely blessed in life. I have no complaints. And, and God bless my wife. You know, I, I've told the Lord He knows. Uh, any day for a Christian to die, me included, is a good day, right? I leave futility. I go to heaven. I'm with Christ. This is a good day. But most of us are saying, you know, we want to hang around as long as God wants us so that we can be there for other people. Absolutely. But listen, here's a long life. This is Genesis 47. So Joseph has risen to the heights of power in Egypt. He's brought his dad, Jacob, down with all the extended family. And guys, Jacob's old. And Joseph introduces his dad, Jacob, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And I'm sure this is the way this goes. Pharaoh watches this really old guy walk up. And you know what his first question is? How old are you? That's what he asks him. How many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning, so I'm a shepherd, I've been wandering this whole time, are 130 years, 130. Now listen to how he describes them. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Now picture this, Jacob is God's man. He's been chosen He's been protected. He's been provided for. He's got long life and he's got kids and grandkids. He's got material wealth. He's been supernaturally protected by God. And he says 130 years and it's been a rough go. Christians are those who know this earth is not our home. It's a temporary assignment as we wait for future glory and look to our true home. Hebrews 11 says, a city whose architect and builder is God. Here we have no lasting habitation Hebrew says but we're going to a place that does now out of lament you get this prayer for wisdom verse 11 when he asks this question who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you we could say to make this clear according to the fear that is do you like lord who knows enough who has enough wisdom to fear you and reverence you and and esteem you the way you should be feared and reverenced and esteemed? The question is no one. Our mortality, uh, there's called for sin, there's a noetic effect on your mind and mind. This doesn't mean we're stupid or smart. It means our brains don't work the way they were meant to. And it's not a, so much a hardware, it's a software problem. This noetic effect, it's diminished our ability to see life the way it really is. You know, why do we say I can sin and get away with it? The noetic effect, that's irrational. It's insane. God says if you sin, you get death. And I say, well, I could sin a little and I won't get death. It's like, nope, God can't lie. And it's always going to be this way. Our, our very minds, our thought processes, are affected by the fall. That's part of what's going on. And so Moses says, God, no one can come to you And offer you your due in fear and reverence and esteem unless you give it. And so what follows is that prayer. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Guys, that's a memory verse. Teach us to number our days. New American Standard says, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And the thought there is, Lord, if you will answer that prayer if we can understand the brevity of our life and the futile elements of our life, that gives us wisdom to live life with you as our reference. So we're not going to take our cues from other people or other things, but that will allow us to live a life that you count successful because it's all referenced by you. Your wisdom. Things as they really are. That's what Moses pleads for God for. And then look at what follows the same prayer verses 13 through 17 there at the end it's this plea so Moses's life is winding down and it's been a hard go for him just like the others who've come through the desert years he says return o lord god's covenant name o yahweh how long have pity on your servant satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love or your faithful love your loyal love so that we can rejoice and be glad all our days. In fact, he says, Lord, as many days as you've afflicted us, would you give us that much back in days of joy and gladness? Let your work be shown to your servants. And I love this this verse too. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. So God, if you'll favor us, then we can live life in a way that you'll count successful. The work of our hands will be established. It won't be the vanity that attaches to the rest of things on planet Earth, but it will be substantial. We'll be part of something that has eternal value. Uh, How many of our labors are those being established by God? Uh, We can waste a lot of time. And and this is uh, the big takeaway for this not only to bring, uh, make Christ our refuge, the place that we hide from God's anger and sin, so to speak, but it's also this sense of how can I live life well? Well, I have to live it with eternity in mind in this reverence for God, and I've got to have a wisdom that helps me know what's worth my time and what isn't. What's worth my time and what isn't. And, and by the way, This isn't saying that Christians are called to breakneck speed in labors all their life. You just don't see that in the Bible. So, you know, God establishes patterns for life. You see that in the creation account. Six days, God stops. He gives the Jews six days you work and you stop, you pause. Jesus takes his disciples. They quit working. They go to a desert place so they can just get a break. This doesn't say that life is always about laboring. But it just says, what are our labors over? And where's the majority of our life being spent on? What kinds of things are we spending the fruit of our lives? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved, and this is in the context of resurrection. Christians can spend their lives on earth well, because we've got eternity coming in resurrection life. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That guys, whatever you're doing for Christ, he says, it's not vanity. And by the way, if you're a parent, if you're investing in the lives of others, if you're serving in the church, you will look at a lot of your investment and wonder, did this go anywhere? Is there any fruit to this? God says it's not in vain. What you do for Christ will not be in vain. So really, we want to be doing what Moses did. We want to be participating in things that God is establishing. And if you look, uh, Ephesians 2.10 says this, that not only has God gifted you the gift of faith and life, but he's also set up divine appointments, labors for you to participate in. God's already set them up. We don't have to work hard at this. We just have to have our eyes open. Or Philippians 2 says uh, it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. We just have to have an ear open to the Holy Spirit. This is what I want you to be about. This is what I want you to do. We're called to submit all our labors to God as service rendered to Him, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. So this isn't hard. God's not laying some huge onus, some burden on us. You remember Jesus says in the Gospels, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, when Jesus is with us in this, this isn't extraordinary calls we're, we're answering. This is simply to labor with Christ. So, as we wind down. Thank God that we don't live under the covenant God gave through Moses at Sinai, but the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The wrath of God for your sin and mine has been poured out on Jesus. The curse of sin and death has been absorbed for us by Christ. Those who are trusting Christ for salvation no longer exist under God's anger and wrath, but rather have been brought near to God as Father. This is Romans 8. We get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in us says, Abba, Father. God, You're no longer that that scary power of Sinai. You're My Father, and I can come to You boldly. God's righteous anger and wrath were fully satisfied in Jesus' death so that we walk in newness of life characterized by grace and truth, joy and peace. Think of the fruits of the Spirit. We still live very short lives, but they're no longer defined by the dust of death, but by resurrection life, the Holy Spirit of God at work in us. He is our life in these dusty bodies. And when our short lives end like grass as they must with our last breaths, or if Jesus calls today, that'd be okay too, our spirits join Christ in heaven and glory, waiting our glorious eternal resurrection bodies. That's our future. It's not vanity. It's not dust. It's eternal glory. Moses' prayer has been answered for us in Christ. The favor of the Lord our God is upon us. He is establishing the work of our hands. That's what he's doing today. We'll stand if you would, and I want to close by reading from 2 Corinthians 4, which has this same theme in mind. Read with me, please. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal."